Many of you know that over this last year, the elders on our session that really give spiritual leadership to this church have been in a season of intentional spiritual discernment. Essentially, what we've done is we've asked Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to say? What do you have to say to us as a congregation at this time, in this season? And the answer, the word from Jesus that we've heard are the same words that he said to the disciples in John 15. It is the extended metaphor of the vine and the vineyard. I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me as I abide in you. So what we're, what we're hearing Jesus say is North Creek Church, figure out what it means to abide in me and everything else will take care of itself. And because of that, as a session, we want to make this, this whole invitation from Jesus more than just an image, more than a beautiful image of a flourishing grapevine. And so we decided to translate this invitation into more concrete words, more concrete language. And what that's going to allow us to do is to better assess how are we doing at this? What are we doing well? What can we do? And that is what this graphic on the wall behind me and the, the words, the big uh, capital letter green words on the screen right now are all about. This is the session's answer to the question, what does abiding really look like? How does a church set about being a church where people abide in Jesus like a branch abides in a grapevine. And specifically, what we wrestled with is what verb best captures what Jesus is inviting us to do here. The verb we came up with is connecting. Connecting is what that grapevine is all about. So what we're hearing Jesus say is, North Creek Church, you're to be about the task of connecting people to a life-giving relationship in Jesus. We're to be about connecting you all us who are in this room right now with Jesus, and we are be, to be about connecting people who at this moment don't even know Jesus yet, connecting them to a life-giving relationship with Jesus. You're going to hear this phrase a lot in the next few months, including at an all-church town hall that we're having on a Saturday morning, this is October 13th, where the session is inviting you to come and engage with this sentence and help us assess how we're doing, what are we doing well, what can we do better, and what do we do that really suppresses the connecting of people to a life-giving relationship in Jesus. So that's going to be happening. Meanwhile, I hope that you have noticed how we are really, throughout this discernment, really sinking worship with this phrase in mind. We're designing worship, our music and our singing and our preaching and scripture and sacrament to connect people to a life-giving relationship with Jesus. That's why we spent all summer working on 11 verses, John 15, and that was the passage about the grapevine. We worked our way through that very slowly, very carefully, this morning, we're starting the next step of that. We're shifting our focus to the last word in this eight-word sentence, the word Jesus. We're asking the question, okay, just who is this Jesus with whom we are invited to connect? And what better way would there be to explore that than to immerse ourselves thoroughly and deliberatively in one of the four 
biographies of Jesus that are in our New Testament, the four Gospels. Well, in our case, it is going to be the Gospel of Luke. And it just turns out that the 24 chapters of the Gospel of Luke are roughly equivalent to the 24 weeks between now and Father's Day. So, this morning we're setting out to do something really ambitious. We are going to get to know Jesus really, really well by taking one chapter a week this morning through June 9th, 2019. Now, on this journey, I think you're going to find Luke an able guide. Now, if, as most Bible scholars assume, the Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke is the same Luke that Paul refers to in two of his letters in Colossians and Philemon, then Luke is a physician, and he is someone who volunteers to go with Paul on his second missionary journey, which is through all of Turkey and through all of Greece. Most importantly, though, is Luke's focus on who Jesus is. That is why he sets out to write this gospel. He explains it in the first few verses, if you want to read those this week. Now, you might not know this, but if we did not have Luke's gospel as one of the four, we'd be missing an awful lot. We would not know about the manger at Christmas. We would not know about the shepherds. We would not know about the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son. We wouldn't know that delightful story about Zacchaeus and his tree because all that stuff happens only in Luke's gospel. And through these episodes and through a whole lot more, Luke paints a distinctive portrait of this Savior he loves, of this Messiah who has changed his life. And through these stories, he wants to show us as his readers who Jesus is and what's important to Jesus. He wants to show us Jesus' amazing, powerful personality. And so over these next five months, Luke is going to be teaching us about a Messiah who is at the same time incredibly compassionate. That's really important to Luke. For Luke... Jesus is the Messiah who also has this tender heart for the underdog, for the poor, for the hopeless, for the beleaguered. And in each of those situations, Jesus heals and he frees and he restores those who are broken by this fallen world. And the good news is that includes you and that includes me. So what an invitation to hear Luke tell us about Jesus. So I say, let's get to it. Let's launch this nine-month journey of studying together, attending carefully and thoughtfully what, Jesus, what Luke has to say about this Jesus and uh, highlighting everything we learn about Jesus. In fact, we're going to do that quite literally with a highlighter. You didn't know this, but by coming to worship this morning, you get a highlighter. It is a special highlighter for this series. It has the series title on it. Not only that, because we're in the Northwest, it is made of recycled paper, and it has um, sustainable balsa wood clip on it. So don't suck on it, because I think it'll dissolve in your mouth. But not only is it a highlighter, it's a combination pen and highlighter. And uh, along with that, they're going to be passing that out. You probably already figured this out, but this is a bookmark. 
This is a bookmark that we're giving you, and on this bookmark, it has our class syllabus for our nine-month class. Basically, what chapter we're going to be looking at each calendar week, and then what particular passage we're going to be looking at in Scripture. So together, this pen and this bookmark, we're, we're asking, we're putting an obligation on you. We're giving you an invitation and a challenge to join us as we, as a whole congregation, together study Luke's gospel and Luke's picture of Jesus over these next nine months. Now, this might be on your own. It might be with your family. It might be with your small group, if you're part of a small group. It might be with somebody with whom you make a Starbucks appointment every week until Father's Day. And week by week, we want you to follow along. And hopefully, before you come to worship, read that chapter of Luke and come prepare because we're going to be digging into it. And then in November, as part of our adult education series, Don Lichty is going to have a class in which he explores Luke's um, biblical writings as well. Now, some of you are just like really thoughtful and you're looking at this and you're already noticing some peculiarities, so I figure I should probably explain them. One of which is, okay, David, we're going through all 24, ver- all 24 chapters. Why are we starting with chapter 4? Any ideas? Christmas, thank you, very good. Chapter 1 through 3 is Luke's Christmas story, and I figure, hey, let's save that for Advent. There's a little bit else. I did a little bit of tweaking at the end, partly to to make Luke's uh, two chapters about the cross fit into Lent. And then chapter 21 is this amazing story about the end of the world. And I decided to save that until the end of the series, which hopefully, hopefully is not also the end of the world. But if it is, we will be prepared. So putting 21 at the end. And then you'll notice that we just get a little bit into Luke's other book, the second volume, Acts of the Apostles, in order to coordinate Acts 2 with Pentecost, which is the Sunday right before Father's Day. So that's where we're heading. But let's focus back in on today and on chapter 4. As I said, the real reason, the initial reason that I started in chapter 4 was to postpone the Christmas stuff until Advent. But then I looked at it and I realized, oh my gosh, this was an inspired decision for another reason. And the reason is it allows us to begin this whole series with what is probably one of the most significant chapters or episodes in all of Luke's gospel. It is this scene at the at the synagogue there in Nazareth that Tegan read for us so well just a moment ago. This is a perfect place to begin highlighting who Jesus is through Luke's eyes. Because here, I mean, there's stuff that goes on before. There's the temptation and there's getting some disciples and things like this. But for Luke, this is Jesus' debut on the public stage. This is Luke's story of Jesus being introduced to the world as Israel's prophet, priest, and king, and as the savior of the world. And many Bible scholars look at this episode and call it Luke's gospel in miniature, because right there in one episode, in one passage of the Bible, is Luke highlighting, highlighting already for us everything that he thinks is most important about this person Jesus, his character, who's going to be the star of this story that he is going to tell. And so as we begin this year with Luke, but more importantly this year with Luke's Messiah, Jesus Christ, I want to briefly, really quickly highlight four characteristics of Jesus that here at the very beginning Luke wants us to already notice. All right, the first 
is that Jesus is evidence of God's faithful continuity throughout the generations. As Luke tells this story, there is Jesus. I think of him, I mean, I was back home this week, so I'm thinking of Jesus back home going to church with his parents. He's back in his hometown synagogue. And really interestingly, Jesus is asked to be worship leader, just like Tegan and Mickley this morning are our worship leaders. Jesus is asked to be worship leader. He's asked to read the scripture. The tradition then was they had an assigned passage from the books of Moses that they'd read every day in synagogue, just like Jews do to this day. And the, the passage for that day was from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And it's this amazing vision that Isaiah has about what's going to happen in the fullness of time, about this coming day of God's full restoration of all creation. And so he reads it. And so far, it's a typical day in the synagogue in Nazareth. And then Jesus kind of goes rogue. Jesus sits down and he says, essentially, today, because of me, this scripture is fulfilled. I told Tegan not to say that this morning. <laughs> Jesus says, Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Wow, what a gutsy thing to say. What an astonishing claim. Jesus, or Luke, as the writer, does intend your jaw to drop just a little bit that Jesus would say that. But even more, there's something more important going on, and that is that in the upcoming chapters, Jesus is going to say an awful lot of jaw-dropping things. He's going to make some astonishing claims. But here, Luke wants you to know that none of these come out of nowhere. Because for Luke, the story of Jesus isn't really a new story at all. It is the same story that God's been telling of God's own faithfulness since the dawn of time. It is the story of God's grand plan to restore and repair broken creation which started in the garden. It's the story of God's long pursuit of us lost wandering humans that he loves so well, the story that goes through Abraham and through the whole story of Israel. It is the story of God's mission to rescue us and to heal us and to bring us home. What that means is that the Jesus that Luke invites you to follow in all of these chapters already knows you. He already knows you because he made you. He is the creator. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. He is the one who has been gently and patiently pursuing you all of your life. He is the one whose faithfulness is from generation to generation, from age to age. But he's also the one in whom God's promises throughout those generations are completely and fully revealed and fulfilled. It is the year of the Lord's favor as Jesus puts it. So that's the first thing about Jesus, his evidence of God's continuity and faithfulness through time. Second has to do with these specific words from the Isaiah scroll that Jesus reads and that he says are now fulfilled. Because these particular words reveal a template. They reveal a characteristic shape of every encounter Jesus is going to have with people through this gospel. Because... What Isaiah is talking about is what happens to everyone who encounters Jesus. Basically, here in that synagogue, Jesus is saying, I was sent to release captives. I was sent to set the oppressed free. That is what Jesus does. 
That is his characteristic move. That's his MO. And sometimes this liberation is spiritual and it is internal. And Jesus is releasing captives who are captive to sin and ignorance and to despair and to hopelessness and to addiction. And that is very real liberation. But Luke, and especially Luke among the gospel writers, insists again and again that this liberation is also physical. It is also literal. And it is a release from disease. It is a release from poverty. It is a release from the broken and unjust systems that human makes make in our culture. It is a release from oppression. So it is both. And that's because the kingdom of God that Jesus is going to be declaring throughout this story means that God is restoring all things. He's restoring the body and the spirit. He's restoring the individual and the community. He is offering personal salvation and social justice. Jesus is here to liberate God's beloved children from all that enslaves them and oppresses them. And that's what these broken manacles behind me are about. And that is why the first segment, there's these first 12 weeks before Advent, and I wanted to come up with a particular title for this segment. And what I came up with is Releaser of Captives. Because for Luke, that is who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus does. And so each week, we're going to take a passage. Now, as soon as you set out to preach all the way through Luke, you realize that in every chapter, there's probably three or four really good stories. So what we're doing is each week, we're choosing one of those. We hope that you'll read the others as well. We're going to zero in on one of those passages. And in each one of them, what we're going to do is trace how each one is really an account of liberation. Because in each story, there is a captive. There's a captive to disease. There's a captive to sin. There's a captive to brokenness who finds him or herself released by Jesus. Luke wants us to know this about Jesus because he knows that we are captives as well. We are. We are captives to our appetites. We are captives to our own insecurity. We are captive to our fears. And Luke knows that we need a liberator. We need a releaser every bit as much of any of these characters that he's going to tell us about in this gospel ahead. Okay, so Jesus is one, evidence of God's long faithfulness through the ages. Second, Jesus is releaser of captives. Third, Luke wants us to know. He wants to put his cards on the table. He wants to be completely honest that the transformation, the transformation that Jesus intends for every one of us is a transformation that is going to turn us upside down and inside out. Luke knows because he's experienced that when you encounter Jesus, you're going to be changed, and change is always unsettling. And the way that Luke demonstrates this and narrates this is in this remarkably swift metamorphosis among that congregation, that group of uh, Jesus' parents' friends who were all gathered there in Nazareth at that worship service on that Saturday morning. Because in just uh, in a space of just a few verses, things change pretty dramatically. I mean, first, right after he sits down, they're kind of gushing about him, right? They're going, oh, how cute. It's Joseph's son. He's grown up. He's done well. He's an adult. He's so articulate. He's so poised. And then they actually start listening to what he was saying. 
And within six verses, this sort of appreciative applause turns to violent rage. Wow, what happens? What is it that Jesus says that makes them so upset? Well, he gets political. That's what he does. What Jesus does is he takes some cherished assumptions that his hometown folks have and he turns them upside down and he questions them. And specifically, their assumptions about the sorts of people that God might choose to love. As in, God might love those people. God might love those other people. God might love those foreigners. God might love those dirty people. Because you know what these folks in Nazareth had done? They've done something that you will be relieved to know never happens in the modern world. They had wrapped their faith with patriotism. They had concluded, well, if God loves us, that must mean that he doesn't love those other people. He must not love them or them or them or them. And Apparently, nobody told Jesus that when you go home and you go to your folks' church, it's best to steer clear of politics. And especially, it's best to steer clear of racism. But no, Jesus goes there. He baits them. He basically says, hey, you remember the prophet Elijah? He only did miracles for a Zarephathite. Hmm? Yeah, and you remember his successor, Elisha? Well, uh, the only leper that he heals is a Syrian. What Jesus is basically saying, I mean, on his first sermon, he's pretty bold. He's basically saying to all of his friends there in Nazareth, he's saying, hey, what if God cares as much about those people as he does about you? He's saying, hey, what if I understand part of my mission to be proclaiming God's love for these foreigners? He's saying, hey, what if to pursue God's kingdom, you're going to have to give up some of those comfortable, nativist, xenophobic assumptions that you so love to keep. And it's in the changing response of that congregation that Luke really narrates what he knows so well. He knows people's typical response to Jesus and what happens. At first, they listen and they're intrigued and they're amused because what he's saying is so new and so fresh. And then they start to listen. And they realize that what Jesus is saying is really not as bland or as inoffensive as they thought it was. And what they realize is that to follow this Jesus is really no low-stakes decision. It's a high-stakes decision because it demands that the follower, that the disciple, let go of all lesser commitments. And those are commitments to their tribe and to their family and to their nation and to themselves. Turns out that Jesus expects and even requires and intends transformation. And real transformation is always unsettling. And so, just like that group of worshipers in the synagogue, again and again, as people get to know Jesus, that applause begins to turn to discomfort, and then it turns to rage. And in this story, it turns to violent rage. One moment, they're patting Jesus on the back, and the next, they're carting him off to a cliff to throw him off. And so, as Jesus introduces this character Jesus, as he shows us his debut to the world, Luke does not want us readers to be naive. 
He does not want us to be unprepared because Jesus, as beautiful as he is, as merciful as he is, is also profoundly unsettling. And he's especially unsettling to those who consider themselves people of faith. So what, what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to let go of some cherished assumptions. And man, that's hard. He's going to say, if you follow me, you're going to have to stand with me in conflict with some cherished values of your culture and of people you love. And that's hard. If you follow me, you got to know that what I say provokes resistance and hostility, even in your own heart. And what Luke's asking is, are you prepared to follow Jesus nonetheless? And I think what Luke is doing in this story, just masterfully, is he's pointing us readers. He's kind of giving us a peek way through the narrative arc of his gospel story. This Jesus, who is, yes, the evidence of God's long faithfulness to Israel and to humankind, who is, yes, the releaser of captives, is not going to glide unscathed through this mission on which God is sending him. No, he's going to provoke hostility. He's going to provoke fear. He's going to provoke rage. And that rage in the end is going to turn lethal and deadly. And his followers are going to be faced with some really tough choices as the dark clouds gather and as evil seems to triumph. So yeah, the story gets rough and the story gets grim. But just at the end, in, in verse 30, almost so quick and so subtle that you don't notice, Luke wants to tell us one last thing about this Jesus that he loves. Yes, this proclaimer of God's faithfulness, this releaser of captives, is going to be rejected, and he's going to be persecuted. He is going to face death at the hands of his own people. It is dark. It is dark indeed, but Luke allows himself one quick nod to how this story is going to ultimately end. And he wants us to know that even the fiercest rage and the darkest evil cannot ultimately defeat Jesus. And I got to say, as a boy, at the times that I've heard this story, this is one of those scenes I'm always fascinated with. What does Luke mean by the fact that Jesus passed through the midst of the crowd and went on his way? What I see is I see kind of the special effects from Hollywood. You know those freeze frame scenes where everybody's frozen except one person? I don't know how they do that. It's kind of a three-dimensional thing. That's what I see. Everybody's frozen in these contorted kind of gestures of rage, and then Jesus just kind of walks casually through the crowd and goes on his way. Is that what Luke means for us to understand by this? Is it intended to be a miracle, a supernatural miracle that he's describing? Maybe. Or is it possible that all of these residents of Nazareth are just so blinded by their rage that they don't even notice him? They just get so wrapped up in their rage that they forget him, and he just kind of walks on his way. It's possible Luke, as a master storyteller, leaves this ambiguous on purpose. We're we don't know. We're supposed to think about it and wonder about it. But what we're not supposed to wonder about is the, the, the truth, the fact, the confidence that God will not ultimately abandon Jesus. That human rage, in the end, is not powerful enough to hold Jesus in his grip. And on that Saturday morning, but in the bigger picture, on that Sunday morning that's coming, Jesus 
will walk through the midst of them and go on his way. So, as Luke narrates Jesus' debut, his public debut, his first time on the, on the world stage, the beginning of his public ministry, the things that Luke is asking us to notice about Jesus, what he's asking us to highlight with our highlighter pen, are not four abstract theoretical characteristics of Jesus. They are four personal invitations to you. Invitations for you to follow in the life of discipleship, in a relationship, a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Because in Jesus, God's long, faithful pursuit of you comes full circle. Because in Jesus, God longs to liberate you from whatever holds you in chains, whatever enslaves you. Because in God, because in Jesus, rather, God wants to transform you into somebody who can live and who can love as radically as Jesus, and that is going to require some unsettling discomfort of real transformation. And because in Jesus, God's whole, God holds the victorious end of your story as well. All that to say, I am really looking forward to highlighting this Jesus together with you over these next nine months.